Well, if you're able, if you have your Bibles, open them to Exodus chapter 10. We are here in the 10th chapter of Exodus and addressing the 8th plague this morning. And as we return uh, to this part, uh, this epoch of God's redemption plan of his people, ultimately in Christ, consummately in the age to come, we come to this display of God's sovereign rule over all his creation. And not only this is I've said, but also it's his gracious care and preservation over his people to show forth the wonders of his mercy to us who take refuge in Christ. Follow along as I read for us Exodus chapter 10. I'll be reading the first 20 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. They shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will also eat the rest of what, was, what has escaped, what is left to you from the hail. And they will eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. Then your houses shall be filled with the houses and or shall be filled in the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came upon the earth until this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? So Moses and Aaron will brought, were brought back to Pharaoh and he said to them, go serve the Lord your God, who are the, who are the ones that are going? Moses said, we shall go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, we shall go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, thus may the Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Take heed, for evil is in your mind. Not so. Go now, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. So they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land, even all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord directed an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled in all the territory of Egypt. They were very numerous. They had never been so many locusts, nor would there be so many again. For they covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees and the that the hail had left. 
Thus nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hurriedly called Moses and Aaron, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and make supplication to the Lord your God that he would only remove this death from me. He went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. So the Lord shifted the wind to a very strong west wind, which took up the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not one locust was left in all the territory of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us petition him for help one more time this morning. Oh Lord, as your word has gone forth, we trust that you will illuminate it now to us, not by any inherent value, not by purely skill, but by your spirit, Lord. That your spirit may, that your word may go forth in power, blessing your people. Oh Lord, may we, by your spirit also, not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. We have been examining here the plagues and their connection to Pharaoh's question in chapter 5, where Pharaoh asked this question, Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? It was a perilous question that Pharaoh asked, and it turns out to be a question that leads to his destruction for the Lord as we've, as we've been seeing, is taking ten plagues to answer that question definitively. For Pharaoh, we know, has put his trust in the pantheon of Egyptian gods as well as in himself, as a son of the gods, as a deity himself, and so the Lord is destroying every, every vestige of that false religion. We also began our study in the plagues by asking the same question ourselves. Who is like Yahweh? And a number of weeks ago, we made an emphasis on the source of the answer being found in God's revealed word. Then we saw that the fourth plague had a stress upon worship being directed toward the Lord alone. This being limited by his revealed will alone. Then how in the fifth and sixth plagues, they displayed God's righteous judgment upon sinners with a goal that he, that we, as those who are found in Christ, would wonder at his perfect and sufficient grace. Last week, we did not move very far away from that idea as the final plagues, as we saw, that as, as we were introduced to these final plagues, serve as a typological model for God's judgment of unbelievers and relatedly a disciplining of wayward believers throughout the church age. We continue this theme, who is like Yahweh this morning, as we address the eighth plague, where we will see that Christ's authority extends even over all situations of sufferings that are sent from the hand of God to purify the saints and punish unbelievers. Christ rules over such, over such an apparently chaotic world 
and suffering does not occur indiscriminately or by chance. So that the believer is comforted because they know that whether they live or die, they are Christ's and he will be with them. As we've been looking at the plagues, it's uh, been uh, my habit to remind you that their arrangement comes to us in three threes. There is a uh, distinction between the first two of every set of three from the third, because in the first two plagues, a warning is given. And it seems that in the first plague specifically, the warning is given to Pharaoh as he goes down to the water, probably to engage in some ritualistic washing or worship. The second part of the, uh, the second of the series of three plagues usually comes to Pharaoh in his courts where he rules or uh, makes judgments over the people. But the third in those series of three plagues comes without warning. The Lord just judges the land. And we've been seeing that these plagues in their three threes come to a culmination. They're all moving towards and carrying along this narrative to the tenth plague. The tenth plague stands alone for it will be that tenth plague that will set in motion the festival of Passover whereby the Israelites will be drawn to remember all that the Lord had done in delivering them out of Egypt. And furthermore, that serves the new covenant, the new covenant sacrament of the Lord's table, whereby Christ presents himself as the Passover lamb, lamb who takes away the sins of the world. We've been seeing also that these plagues give us our, uh, expose a manifold purpose, that they give a public manifestation of the mighty power of the Lord God. They were a divine visitation of wrath, both upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians, as well as they were a judgment from God upon the gods or the demons behind the gods of Egypt, which demonstrated that Jehovah was high above all gods. There is none like the Lord. They also were to display man's utter inability and dependence, as well as God's utter omnipotence and independence. They were a solemn warning to other nations that God would curse those who cursed the Israelites. And these plagues were meant to strengthen the people of God in the knowledge of God. And it was for them to know better their covenant God. And so this morning, as we look at this eighth plague, we'll look at it just under two headings. The Lord's warning and the Lord's purpose. The Lord's warning comes at the beginning of our passage. The Lord here establishes what the Israelites and Egyptians were going to go through or about to go through, and that this would be according to his primary agency, that it would not be by uh, Mother Nature, that it would not be by some a naturalistic process, but they will be by the supernatural acting and agency of God himself. That they would know Yahweh. And again, they're a he's answering again Pharaoh's question from chapter 5. And we see Pharaoh's response at the end of our passage that 
that sad response that ends every section or every uh, plague here in the Exodus account. That Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Here it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the sons of Israel go. Psalm 14 says that it is the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. And the same fool is the one who does not call upon the Lord. So that's not just a, a, a curse upon or a, um, an insult upon the atheist. For we know that there is not, there's no such thing as a true atheist. For the atheist is worshiping himself, setting himself in the place of God. And so he is a fool who says that there is no God. And we see later on in that psalm that the same fool is the one who does not call upon Yahweh, who does not call upon the Lord. And in this warning, the Lord warns Pharaoh that he will do something for a purpose to make himself known, but also to judge their hardness, to judge their, uh, the way they've, one, treated the Israelites and continue to deny the sovereignty of God. And so he brings these locusts as a display of his sovereign authority. But what we see is that when God displays his sovereign authority, his righteous judgment, that what is coupled with that is his gracious mercy. When God judged Adam and Eve in the garden, and told them they had sinned, he also provided covering for them. When God judges the whole earth in the flood, washing away all of creation, he extends his gracious mercy to Noah and his family. So as he ultimately will judge Babylon, he calls out of Babylon, out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, Abraham, whom he will bless and bring an offspring who will bless through whom all the nations will be blessed. And so here in the Exodus account, we see that God is displaying his sovereign mercy, which shows forth his righteous judgment, but is coupled with his gracious mercy. God judges them through the sending of locusts. These locusts come at the bidding of God, and they also depart at his bidding. And though it's not mentioned here, it's understood that it, it probably implies from the previous uh, um, plague, as well as the subsequent plague, that the Lord restricted their movement from the Israelites. And so they come at the bidding of God and they depart at his bidding, as does every creature. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. We never escape God's agency. There's never a thing we do that, it, that is not upheld by him. For in him we have our existence. If he removes his agency from us, we cease to exist. In Reformed theology, we understand this as primary and secondary causes, such that God is not the agent of sin. He's not the causer of sin, but by secondary causes, he has sovereignly ordained that 
sin would enter this world. And here we see that God's sovereignty extends to every creature, to every part of nature, wind blowing, the feeblest of creatures as well as the mightiest fulfill the secret counsels of their creator. As the locusts came upon the leftover uh, crop of the Egyptians, it was, it was their last hope of having a harvest. It was their last hope of, of not having succumb or being come to complete economic ruin and ultimately complete uh, health and physical ruin for they would starve at the lack of uh, at the lack of nourishment and it may have been that the Israelite or the Egyptians at some point in time would have called upon their gods in the midst of this one of the gods it was the god uh, Nipper who is the god of grain he was the offspring of the harvest goddess Renuet or new uh, excuse me Renutet. He was regarded as a fertility Egyptian god. In the religion of ancient Egypt, he was regarded as the lord of mouth and a source for nourishment. Nipper was also depicted in human form, wearing a short kilt and a crown or headdress that featured his name symbol. Sometimes he also carried a staff or a scepter that represented his power and authority. Again, we see in our uh, in our play, or in the eighth plague this morning, that these locusts come upon the rest of the crop, but they come upon the rest of the crop through the means by which Moses, raising his staff, stretching out his hand, not only is the staff, as previously established, a, sim a symbol of the power that God has entrusted to Moses and 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 God's power, but here it also serves as a, as a counterattack against the staff or scepter of Dnieper. For Dnieper had no power and no authority to stop the locusts from consuming the crop. He had no ability to stay the hand of the Lord. And it was so that Pharaoh would learn that Yahweh alone is supreme. And the implication being that the gods in whom Pharaoh had trusted and in whom he represented were essentially nothing. As we saw in the earlier plagues, hard as they were on the Egyptians, were actually examples of restraint since God already could have sent at any time a full destructive plague to eliminate the Egyptians pop Egyptian population entirely. This isn't a 10-round battle between God and the gods of the Egyptians that needed to go 10 rounds. No, God sovereignly decreed that he would take 10 plagues to utterly decimate from the minds of the Egyptians and as a display to the Israelites that there is one God in heaven. There is one God who rules over heaven and earth. And it is as Bo Moses says to Pharaoh, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh. By displaying his control over this phenomena, the Egyptians 
that the Egyptians attributed to other gods, the Lord clearly indicated his realm was without limits of any sort. Especially, it included Pharaoh, who thought of himself as the ultimate power in Egypt. What God did to Pharaoh, the Egyptians in general, and to Egypt's gods was to show them powerless and helpless, to expose their pride as empty arrogance, and to shame them forever in the process. That is to humiliate them. You know from the Ten Commandments that God is a jealous God. And he's not jealous as, as we are jealous, that we wish there was something we have, but we don't. But God in the, his perfection, his jealousy is that he is, does not receive all that is due his name. What is... Pharaoh's response to such a thing when the Lord brings these locusts upon. Well, he, he responds first in compromise before the locust comes. And then the second way he responds is in false repentance. Let's first look at the second way. In verses 16 and 17, Pharaoh hurriedly calls for Moses and Aaron and he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God, against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and make supplication to the Lord your God that he would only remove this death from me. Pharaoh's false repentance here, we can observe that the prayer of this hardened sinner was not to take away his sin. Yes, he does mention the forgiveness of sin, but ultimately he's not asking God to take away his sin. Pharaoh is not concerned that he is an offense to a holy and righteous God. No, Pharaoh brings his religion and intermixes it, or he tries to introduce it into true religion, where he says, for he wants to appease God as Pharaoh seeks to appease the false gods. And seeks only to remove the punishment of it. This forms the striking difference between true, said false repent, true and false repentance. Thus, Mo uh, David says, "Mine iniquities are too heavy for me to bear." In Psalm 38, and Cain says, "My punishment is greater than I can bear." In Genesis 4, I've drawn your attention to that. A contrast in previous sermons and we see it here where Pharaoh comes and he says please forgive my sin only this once make supplication to the Lord your God that he would rem only remove this death from me he doesn't have the heart of Paul oh wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death Pharaoh death was external death was the locusts, death was the crops that were eaten up, death was the prospect of no harvest. What Pharaoh was missing is that death was within. Death was contained in his heart, yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The displayed, this displayed his sovereign rule not only over every lower creature like the locust, but also every heart, the rational creature like Pharaoh. We see here that 
this works in Pharaoh to harden his heart even more. How is that possible? There's a sense in which Pharaoh's heart was softened, or we could say was warmed to the Lord in him coming for some sort of forgiveness from God. And then when the Lord relents and removes the locusts, what happens to Pharaoh's heart? It hardens even more. I discovered in my time of study this week that there's a phenomena that happens with water. I don't know if you know this, but water freezes faster when it's warm than when it's cold. It seems that if you warm water up before you freeze it, it will freeze faster than if you put cold water in to freeze. Very counterintuitive. There's a much to be written about. Uh, it was an ancient discovery that was lost and re rediscovered by uh, a, school, a school person. And it's named after that person, this, the Pemba effect, if you want to look it up and you question my study. But that is only to show you that there is demonstration in nature of what's happening to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart was slightly warm, but it was only the warming of that that then produced greater hardness in his own heart. And ultimately, the hardness was a, a symptom of his spiritual death, of his, of his spiritual deadness, which will be joined with his physical deadness eventually in the Red Sea. As we see God foreboding that in, in driving the locusts from the land. And they don't just go anywhere. They go into the sea. So we will see this uh, later in the Lord's purpose but it represented in the locusts were all the false gods of the Egyptians. And so the false gods go into the Red Sea. So the Egyptians will follow. So will the idolater. As the idol, it says, is submitted to the fire, so will the idolater. But not only do we see God's righteous judgment here, we also see his gracious mercy. Moses answer to Pharaoh's question about who will go because Pharaoh says who's going to go and Moses basically says everyone's going everyone's going and all of our possessions are going with us you see the intention here is that when Pharaoh said we're going to go and worship for three days it seems that Pharaoh understood all along that if they go that this going to worship God this festival would was going to be a festival that led to their ultimate release. Pharaoh was not privy to the fact that the festival that they would go and uh, celebrate was the festival of their own destruction, of Egypt and the Pharaoh's destruction. And so the, the, the beginning of their exodus from Egypt. So Pharaoh here, keen to this understanding, says, well, and, and, he's, and what's interesting here is that he's not implored by his magicians. He's not implored by the wise men who have been undone in this whole scenario as we've seen them try to recreate uh, these plagues and earlier ones and been unable to do it, eventually uh, concluding that this truly is the hand of God. But he's implored by his servants. And here, the beginning and the fracturing of Pharaoh is seen because his servants come to him and they rebuke him. 
say, this will be to your own undoing. Have we not been destroyed enough? Let them go and worship. Pharaoh listens to his servants. And he offers Moses a compromise. Go and the men alone go and worship. But Moses says, no, we must all go. Every last Israelite, every last possession. And as we know, they don't just go with their own possessions, but eventually they're going to go with the possessions. They're going to plunder the Egyptians. For us, this is of great encouragement. For Christ has said that all the elect will be delivered from darkness or from Egypt. All the elect will be delivered. Here we have, uh, we'll see further application to an understanding as it relates to the worship of God and the means by which he calls sinners to Christ, being the means of grace and the introduction and the inclusion of all generations and all peoples in the worship service of God. But here, first, we must see this as a representation of us in Christ. This displays God's intent to destroy the Egyptians through the destruction of the locusts in the Red Sea, as I said, and that destruction of the Egyptians will be the way and the means by which he delivers the Israelites, every last one of them. What's interesting about this plague is not only that we can draw these conclusions from his warning, but we are also told something of the Lord's purpose. We see in verse 2 that the Lord purposed for this to be a display and demonstration to the Israelites that they may tell in the hearing of their sons and of their grandsons how the Lord made a mockery of the Egyptians, how he performed his signs among them, that they may know who the Lord is, or that I am the Lord. As we look at it here in God's purpose, we understand that there's something happening here that goes beyond the Israelites. And, it, and dare I say, it goes beyond their understanding. For in verse 2, as we will see, there is a singular to the you given. He's talking to Moses as representative of the Israelites. We'll see that plays into great significance for us in understanding this passage. But first, let's see that this can indicate that there is something more here at work than the Israelites of this generation are to know. Turn with me to Psalm 106. And it's not that they know nothing. But it's that God has intended for there to be more to know of this passage than those that were involved in that first exodus. Psalm 106 and verse 7 says that our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindness, but rebelled, rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. 
Thus he rebuked the Red Sea, and dried, and it dried up. And he led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. So he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words, and they sang his praises. Consider here that even in that first generation, there was more to know about the demonstration of the plague of locusts for them, for they were to know something more about this demonstration that they would forsake at the Red Sea, and the Lord graciously brings them through it. But even beyond that, that they would tell the coming generation, those that are young and may not be able to remember it. Some of my kids' memories are held in pictures that we took of those memories. They remember them because they've seen many pictures of them, or I've told them, when you were younger, this happened. Such is the picture here of the locusts of the plagues to serve for the Israelites. For it was to be a demonstration of God's faithfulness to deliver his people, that God would be a God who fulfills his promises. And so this indicates that the Israelites' knowledge of the meaning of the Exodus events did not exhaust the meaning. Robert Hawker says, we lose much of the beauty of this interesting history unless we read it with eyes given to us by the Spirit of God as well as historically and behold in it the type of our deliverance from sin and bondage by the glorious conquests of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a sweet thought when the subject is considered in this point of view. It is to a tried soul in the hour of distress that God's glory and the deliverance of his people is the great object all along intended from the exercises of the faithful. This telling of the future generations was not only to impart knowledge of the Lord's past actions, but also to give framework to his future actions. The implication is that fuller revelation would, give, would be given to future generations. So Paul uses this Exodus motif when he writes to the Galatians in Galatians 4. He wrote, now I say, as long as... The heir is a child. He does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Here, Paul uses this motif of uh, fathers and children. It's, it's not just found in the Exodus motif, but it's echoed in there and echoed again in Deuteronomy and in other places in the Psalms that there is a deliverance of God's goodness to the next generation. But it is not just that we would teach our own children, but that we are that generation brought up by Christ, our head, for he came in the fullness of time, that there would be a fullness of time. The fullness of time had not yet come for the Israelites. For Paul, when he read the Old Testament, he read it as anticipating the revelation of Christ in the fullness of time. 
So as we too look at it, we may understand that as uh, subsequent revelation gives fullness to previous revelation. And so we can see where locus is used in other parts of scripture and in, in, namely in specifically like Joel 2 where it's described as a judgment to come upon the Israelites. But ultimately, consummately, we see it in Revelation chapter 9. Let's turn there together. As I've been saying, it's not my intention to do uh, full justice uh, to Revelation as we've been referencing it time and time again from the Exodus. But it's important that we see these themes carried on throughout Scripture so that we may understand what it is God intended these locusts to serve subsequent generations. Revelation 9, we see that there is a trumpet blown. The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven that had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. So we see power is given to these locust creatures. And they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor the green, any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. In short, we see that the power of these locusts is restricted to the Lord's purpose. Though they're released upon the earth, they, they, they affect uh, ultimately only those who do not have, or are tho are those who, excuse me, who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In verses 7 through 10, we will not read, but it describes their tactics and place in influencing those men or influencing the kingdom of men. And then we find out their identity in verse 11. They have as a king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abandon, and in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. Here we find that their identity is to serve this greater angelic being. That these locusts are of some form of fallen uh, angel or, uh, or demon if we are to separate those in kind. And these demons come upon and we know that they, they harass those that do not have the mark or do not have the seal of God. We know this in our own day, for we have read God's word in Ephesians 6, that we are to put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. There he is, the chief there. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
When Peter drew his sword at Christ's betrayal, Christ said, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Here we find in Revelation 9, as it shows to us again, and we have other uh, plague, uh, plagues of Egypt echoed here, but we're focusing on the eighth plague, the locusts, that they come out and they harass, not to death, but torment in mind, such that the torment of mind of these people would be one that they would seek their death, but they would not have the will to finish it. They would not have the will to go through with it. This harassment we see is that which comes upon those that are not sealed, but those that are sealed by God are to be aware of the fight. Though they are not subject to their ultimate effect, they need to be aware that they may be tormented, harassed, bothered, hampered by such spiritual forces. And as we did in our time of, in Ephesians, we saw that we, are, we do not do this apart from Christ, but we do this in the armor that he supplies to us, that he has worn himself, that he has fitted for us, that he has shown to be true and effective for his purposes. We can even go uh, farther this because as we see here in Moses representing the Israelites and bringing the locusts and the Lord taking the locusts away, what does Christ do when he comes in the flesh? Look in Mark chapter 5. We've gone to the end of the story. Let's go to the middle of the story. We know that Christ came and he cast out demons. This is one in particular occurrence that is of importance to us this morning. It says they came to the other side of the sea in Mark 5.1 in the country of the Gerasenes. When they got out of the boat immediately, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met them and he had been dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gnashing himself, gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed before him, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that me, we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission and coming out, the unclean spirit entered the swine and the herd rushed down the, the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of, 2, of them 
and they were drowned in the sea. You see that this is reported, and later on we, found, we find the same man in his right mind. But what we see here is Christ's work of exorcism, Christ's work of dispelling demons and casting them out, was not just display of, of his purpose in, div in divine power, but it was a, a, a retelling in singular person the story of the Israelites. For what we see in the Exodus and the Lord driving out the locusts into the Red Sea, we would eventually see if we got to Joshua and Joshua driving out the peoples of the land. Why does Joshua drive out the people of the land? Because he's to tear down all their high places. He's to destroy through the power of God all the gods of the Canaanites. So when Christ comes as the true Israelite, as the greater prophet, as the true Joshua, as the son of David, we should expect to find him expelling the false gods, these demons from the land. Here is just one example, casting out a legion of demons, such as somewhat described of our locusts in Exodus chapter 10. And so it had seemed then that the plaguing of Pharaoh and the Egyptians with the locusts points to the yet future punishing of the lost in the company of infernal beings, as the Lord said, they shall be cast into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels in Matthew 25. As we have seen here that Moses comes and the word in verse 2 of Exodus 10 we can turn back there. We see that you is a singular you. And it's presumably referred in the first instance to Moses himself. He was to set the example in this manner and others were to follow his lead. So in this exodus, they have Moses being their leader as their representative leading them out of Egypt. And it was his sons who were to be told about the mockery of the Egyptians. First, it was his sons, but here it was as a, as a template for those that would follow his lead. But it's important that we see that singular there. For as we see, and turn with me now to Isaiah 9, as we will see what God was displaying in this exodus, what he would do in a future exodus. You may know this well as we, it's often read to us uh, during a time, our time of Advent. But what we see in verses 2 and 3 in Isaiah 9 is the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Stealing from my next sermon on the ninth plague, those who, will live in, those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of a harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as the battle of Midian. Here, the Lord is, is prophesying of a new exodus to come, much like typified in the 
in the first exodus. And then in verse 6, it says, the means by which this exodus will come will be by a child being born, in verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There is there is a curiosity there that may arise in us when we read that this child who will be born to us will be called Eternal Father. How is it that Christ can be called Eternal Father? Turn to later on in Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, and we'll see this understanding of Christ as Father, not God the Father, but as Father. Isaiah 53, verse 10, we know this well. We read it oftentimes during uh, the Passion Week. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Now we have this suffering servant having offspring, prophesied to be eternal father, now prophesied to have offspring. Why? Because in Moses, what is typified in Moses is fulfilled in Christ. For though we want to first move from Moses telling sons and grandsons to our own sons and grandsons. We must first not move in that direction. We must first move to Christ and what he has done for us so that in him is where we walk in obedience. We don't uh, merely or purely moralize Exodus 10, but we look to it and we look to Christ first, and then we see what was fulfilled in Christ that he gives us now by his spirit, the power and the might to obey. Such that God's judgments as well as his mercies are to be passed on to future generations. So the blessings of the greater prophet come to his offspring. And we have read in places like Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Colossians 3, 21, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. First, see Christ in his fulfillment of eternal Father, in his fulfillment of, of receiving his offspring. We, his offspring, we being brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord on high. So it's only in that that us as fathers then now go to our children to raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Christ stated after his resurrection that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. The government will sh shall be upon his shoulders. This authority extends even over all situations of suffering that are sent from the hand of God to purify the saints and punish the believers. Consider the locusts, that suffering that he brought upon the Egyptians to punish them, but it was to purify 
the Israelites in their understanding of who God was and faithfully delivering them. Christ rules over such an apparently chaotic world and suffering does not occur. That suffering does not occur indiscriminately or by chance. We may be plagued by many things in this life. There's much suffering to be experienced, but it comes not to us by chance or by fortune or by chaos. For Christ has stated that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So we must see that it comes to us by his permission. And yet we know that as it comes to us, it does not come to us for our destruction as it will work for the unbeliever, but it will come to us for our good and his glory. The section, in fact, reveals that destructive events are brought about by Christ for both redemptive and judicial purposes. It is Christ sitting on his throne who controls all the trials and persecutions of the church. G.K. Bill says that the Exodus plagues caused the Egyptians confusion and despair through the realization that Yahweh was the only true God and that they could not prevail against him. This realization included an anxious conviction of sin, yet unaccompanied by repentance. Believers, by contrast, will fear no evil because they know that whether they live or die, they are with Christ, and that behind the apparent catastrophes and reversals of life, a loving and sovereign God is working out his eternal will for their good. In contrast to the ungodly, they take ultimate pleasure in the torments, even death, which the world imposes on them in order that they may give testimony to Jesus and the word of God. Brothers and sisters, these locusts, as they demonstrate for us God's sovereignty over all creation, but not just, not just the seen world, but the unseen world. That the limit of any spiritual forces of darkness is limited by God alone. So he as, as in any way that they may harass you or torment you. It is limited by God and so purposed by him for your good and his glory so that you will persevere in God's power and spirit. Christ's authority extends over all situations of suffering that are sent from the hand of God to purify the saints and punish unbelievers. Christ rules over such an apparently chaotic world that suffering does not occur indiscriminately or by chance so that the believer is comforted because they know that whether they live or die, they are Christ and he will be with them. If this, if you are not found in Christ, you have no hope, you will be plagued, you will suffer and the suffering in this life is not anyway a suffering unto glory in the next as believers in Christ, but it is a suffering to suffering, death into death. So hear the word of the Lord. Do not harden your hearts as in the day, as we read in Exodus, but turn in true repentance and faith to Christ, for he in him, in him is comfort. In him is hope that in life or death, he will be with us. Let's pray.
Oh, Lord, we give you thanks that these things in your word are alive by your spirit. We give you thanks that you have promised to be with us even to the end of the age. We thank you, Lord, that though we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against all spiritual forces and powers and principalities, for those that are found in you, nothing can separate us from your love. Give us faith to endure. May we lean into you for strength in all things. May your example be to us also an example that we may walk in obedience so that we may tell the coming generation of your faithfulness to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let us respond to the Lord now.